I'm sorry, but your podcast is in another castle. Today we're talking about retro gamers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phanthropological. My name is Nick G, and today we're going to be taking a look back through the mists of history to the 80s or 90s or 2000s or, you know, last week. We're not we're not quite sure, but we're going to be talking about retro gaming. And here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. You can call me the Konami Code because I'm the life of the party. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Nick Z. I've uh, gathered up all my bits this time. Uh, I'm not going to be 8-bit or 16-bit. Uh, probably somewhere around 64-bit. <laughs> uh, millions of polygons. That's all I have to say. And also joining us from the Lost Without Translation YouTube channel, it's Mike. Hey. Mike, thanks for joining us. No problem. I am the uh, stadium events of retro gaming, so let's get into it. <laughs> stadium <laughs> events. Rare catch. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I was going to say we're going to get into some like Melee or Brawl or something like that, but then I forgot that's not really... Retro so much as uh, something like Street Fighter. Well, it depends on who you ask, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. As G mentioned, we were talking about retro gamers this week. I'm going to start us off with a little bit of background in case you didn't know what retro gaming was. If you're listening to this, you probably do. But hey, it's a thing we do every episode. Retro gaming is, of course, the playing or collecting of PC, console, and arcade video games. Usually these games are for systems that are obsolete or have been discontinued. To make a distinction, it can be broadly broken into vintage retro gaming, that is, on the original hardware, uh, emulation retro gaming, and ported retro gaming. Whether or not they go by the name retro gamers, classic gamers, or old school gamers, one thing is clear. There is not a ton of agreement on what constitutes the retro in retro gaming. <laughs> It's a discussion I'm excited to have. Yeah, The <laughs> first usage of uh, retro goes back to, in reference to retro gaming, goes back to 1997 with the Retro Games Video Game Store and 1998 with the emulation website RetroGames.com. Sorry, Z, no Zofar's domain this time. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But for purposes of this podcast, and we will obviously talk about it a little bit, some common definitions include consoles from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Anything older than consoles that came out when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anything that doesn't work with my TV. Or anything before the sixth generation of consoles, whatever that means. Before I get any further, Mike, what's your definition of retro gaming? I like to go two generations back, right? So if we're in PS4 now, PS3 and... I think you have to kind of say PS2 is retro, even though I don't really agree with that because I was already way grown up by the time PS2 was out. <laughs> I think it comes down to like, they just don't make PS2 games anymore, right? And kids that grew up, you know, people that were four and five playing PS2 games, and now they are, you know, 18 years old and 20 years old, they think of that stuff as retro because that's what they remember playing as a kid, right? It's all about the nostalgia they had. But I mean, like you said, it could be a big fight depending on who you're talking to. There are some people that don't think, you know, anything past Atari is retro or anything past, you know, uh, one 3D hit. That's not retro anymore. So there's so many definitions for it. <laughs> the generation stuff, to, just to go back to that, you said sixth generation. I don't know if anyone really categorized what was in each generation, but GameFAQs does. <laughs> so if you go to GameFAQs and click on all consoles, they will show you 
what they consider every generation. And I think that's become the de facto list. Okay. So like first generation was, I don't need like Odyssey one, maybe. I don't even know if that was Odyssey two or the first uh, Odyssey. Let's, let's and then like Atari is second or third. Yeah. Uh, b- 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 first generation. Yeah. I have the Magnavox Odyssey. It's like the only yeah. entry. <laughs> and it's funny because that wasn't even a real console right like all the games were baked in you swapped out cartridges to switch the games but really they just switched what switches were on in the system to play the six different games that were in there oh my goodness i did look up some search data for this episode here's a question for everybody if you had to guess is retro games more or less popular than in 2004 more more yeah more all right this is great. You're all wrong. <laughs> no. I'm... What? Okay. So no. using Google search data, which is the thing that we use every episode because the thing that's very easy to find. Interest since 2004 is less now than it was then. Yeah. But it has gone up. There was a period of decline from 2004 to about 2012. And since 2012, it's been on the upswing again. Hmm. So I'd be curious, actually, to see then what, like, NES, if NES, like, you know what I mean? That's the specific consoles have gone up or down over that time period. That's fair. Because uh, I think we're getting to the point where things are getting so segmented, where, like, you have specific collectors. I'm a Nintendo collector. I'm a Sega collector. And it could just be that it has gone down because people are now going directly to sites like Nintendo Age or Reddit to now kind of figure out where that stuff is instead of just typing into Google blindly. That's true. I did briefly consider, I was like, oh, maybe I tried video game collecting, way less popular than retro gaming. Mm -hmm. And I did try N64, and that eclipsed any other data, so... Yeah, um, N64 is really hot right now in the collector scene. I think we may be actually moving off onto GameCube, but Mm -hmm. for the last, like, three years, N64 (laughs) has been the system that you can kind of still afford, but everybody's (laughs) looking for it. Well, Z, it looks like it's It's your opportunity. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Perhaps I'll finally find a chibi robo and only lose one arm in the process. <laughs> I have a friend who has that. I don't know if he's selling it, what? but uh, I played it. I didn't finish it, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I have a chibi robo. I think I picked it up when it first came out, so I don't know. Has it climbed that much? Like, is it over 100 yet? Or I don't know if it's over 100 yet, but I know that it's like one of those games that came out for the GameCube kind of later on in its life cycle. I don't think it came out in as many quantities, certainly yeah. not as many quantities as like uh, say uh, a Zelda or a Mario game. Yeah, for sure. So kind of scarce, but I feel like that ends. I want to say Cubivore. Yeah, Cubivore. I think is one of the rarest there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two seem to be like kind of tricky to find. When you find them, the price is usually a lot more than you'd expect. Yeah. No. It's it's uh, the one thing that's funny about being a collector for so long is. Uh, Sometimes you pick up a game that you're just really interested in and it just sits there or you play it and it, you put it away and you don't realize till like someone tells you like, oh, that game's really expensive now because I'm not watching the market for that game anymore. I lose track of yeah. what's climbing and what's not, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. cool. Surprising to me, top 10 countries by search volume are the United Kingdom, Japan, Ireland, Canada, Australia, mm-hmm. Sweden, Greece, United States, Netherlands, and France. Oh, interesting. No, a Singapore streak is over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got Japan from, from East Asia. Yeah. yeah. That I am not surprised at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Japan market has been crazy too recently. It used to be like five years ago, you could go to Japan and just pick up tons of retro games for nothing. 
And then I feel like they started throwing their stuff on eBay. And then a lot of collectors started to just take trips to Japan and buy up everything. And now the prices oh. have shot up like crazy. Even the, you know, people in Japan looking for retro games, they don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just hard to find games now. Interesting. It's funny because like we take for granted that a lot of things are like digital now. So they're not really rare. Like maybe if you have a collector's edition of a game, that's rare. Mm-hmm. but like carts there literally were only so many printed so yeah yeah and that gets into a lot of different arguments about how the carts should be preserved and, and all that stuff mm. but yeah it is funny in japan they treat retro carts kind of like dvds right you'd go into like a drugstore or a bookstore and there'd just be a bin of old retro carts there Whoa. <laughs> nice I did manage to find some demographics about retro gamers from the retro gaming subreddit. There were about 600 respondents, some things that shouldn't be surprising to most of us. The largest group of people who responded to the survey were ages 25 to 34, mm-hmm. which probably dates back to like the second or third generation of consoles. Yeah, probably NES players. Yeah. Or Super Nintendo players, yeah. Yeah, that's about 42% of people. This was surprising to me. The largest group of people in terms of years played, 26 to 30 years. So like their entire lives, mostly. Yeah. Hmm. Only 1.7% of respondents have been playing video games for five years or less. Oh, wow. I don't know if that just is the people on that subreddit are more likely to be like older people or or what, but it's like not a lot of younger video game players in there. Mm -hmm. I guess it makes sense to them. Retro was still like, you know the wii u so (laughs) i mean i can see a lot of people just not being interested like i don't know take some people a long time to get into old movies for example right so like you know if you're playing the cool hot stuff why do you want stuff that looks like that yeah you're just playing (laughs) pubg and fortnite exactly (laughs) no okay (laughs) if you had to guess what the most popular retro platform was what do you think it would be snes that's what's in my heart all right (laughs) me too but just from the collector scene i'm gonna have to say nes okay how about you z all right you know what i'm gonna put some variety in here i'm gonna say turbo graphics 16 (laughs) yep you got it that's right z at number one with 100 percent of no not not the turbo graphics no (laughs) no but what about bonk (laughs) the mascot that never was yeah yeah they tried to bring him to other machines, too. You can get a bonk for NES's Wicked Rare, and uh, there's a super bonk for Super Nintendo. But yeah, no, he didn't quite make it. What was... No. I remember the bonk games for not TurboGrafx. <laughs> yeah. I know he was even TurboGrafx associated. Man. Well, it turns out, as usual, everyone except Z was right. Huh. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Z. I picked because I love. It's what happens when you go out on a limb. Sometimes that limb just breaks <laughs> i mean you you knew that when you climbed out there yeah yeah sometimes you could see it happening a mile away <laughs> top five retro platforms the snes at 71 percent. mike your hedged guess of the nes yeah was in second place at 57 percent. okay genesis 47 percent n64 40 percent playstation 38 percent oh wow hmm mm-hmm. There was a big gap between the fifth place and the sixth place. Mm-hmm. And the sixth place is like, and now we're getting into the handheld consoles. Okay. Oh, yeah. Like GBA. Yeah. It's still a little interesting to me that PlayStation's on there because, I mean, Sega, Nintendo, uh, Genesis, SNES, they're old games, but they look good. Yeah. But PlayStation 1 games? 
No. Not so much. I mean, there are some that are still 2D or still sprites or whatever, and they look pretty cool, but early 3D models were not great. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a, a big thing in the scene now is, is upscaling, right? So buying really mm-hmm. expensive upscalers to make your games look as good as they can. Genesis especially looks amazing when it's upscaled. But PlayStation 64, uh, Saturn, there's you can't do much to those. <laughs> <laughs> you can make all the polygons much larger. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that I had for facts, but we did have some famous last words from last episode that, Mike, I'm hoping you can help us out a little bit with. Okay. Who do I want to pick first? I'll go first. It's kind of germane to what we're talking about anyway. Okay. Gee, your famous last words from last episode were, classic rock still means music from 20 years ago. Is retro gaming the same? Does retro gaming expand as time goes on? I'd like to say, T, that you wrote down what I meant incorrectly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what i was saying is in the 90s classic rock meant music from the 70s today it means music from the 70s uh, uh yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah anyway my question was like an impossible to answer one as it turns out what is the definition of retro gaming like we talked about yours kind of off the top and how there's a lot of different ways you can approach it the internet has a lot of different ways that they like to approach <laughs> it <laughs> we've gone over some of them 2d versus 3d is a big one Similarly, but not exactly the same, cartridge versus disc mm-hmm. is the tipping point. Just the two generations ago, a lot of people seem to subscribe to that. Some people plant their flag in the ground at this year, and some people say that it's rolling. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, some people have said, if it's obsolete, if there are no longer games being made for it, oh, man. then it becomes retro. Yeah, I think it's impossible. I think uh, Retronauts was one of the biggest sources of talking about retro games yeah and they had a 10-year rule but i feel like they break it all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah they do it's funny too because it's like even using the rule as like obsolete consoles like consoles that don't have games produced it's like oh well this random person made a made a (laughs) genesis game what was that pierce solar pierce solar yeah 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 and that guy's working on a dreamcast game that may never come out but he's working (laughs) on it here's lunar wow yeah and nes maker is coming out soon right so nes is going to be back in the limelight well that rule is just right out then (laughs) yep yep. (laughs) but i think it is to to go back to the original question i think it is quite a bit different from classic rock although maybe we haven't waited long enough you know maybe in 20 years people will be calling lincoln park and stuff classic rock um (laughs) just because the cycle of music is so cyclical right where like rock is really popular and then it dies down and pop is really popular and and we get these cycles that we don't really see in retro gaming where it's just you know here's the next system yeah we also have a sales cycle introducing uh, the term classic in there as uh, you mentioned off the top t yeah so people said retro is like two generations behind, but classic is from that like like SNES era. And then we had someone else who said retro is none of that. Retro <laughs> is games being made now that borrow the aesthetics of those old games. Oh, whereas the old games are classic. I think, yeah, we need uh, someone with a PhD to weigh in on this and uh, <laughs> make some determinations. A few more words yeah. would be great. <laughs> really. Yeah, I think it's good. I think we need to get to some subcategorization. We'll just get somebody to build an ontology. Because, like, obviously. (laughs) Oh, man. I had to look that up at some point. (laughs) I do not know what an ontology is. (laughs) Help. Do you mean a tautology? No, I definitely don't mean a tautology. (laughs) Good. 
<laughs> Thanks, G. Let's put that back down. My famous last words from last episode were, what more is there to retro gaming fandom than collecting? Mike, what are your thoughts? Well, that's where you get into emulation, right? I think there are a lot of people who still love and play these games, but don't necessarily want to go out and own them. Uh, and that's totally fine. That's totally valid. There are, you know, the collecting scene is is really weird. Stadium events is a great example. No one wants to pay 5000 12000 whatever it's going for, <laughs> uh, dollars for a stadium events. But it's interesting to check out, right? So people that want to know the history, I think a lot of people that get into like you know now they're getting into mario odyssey and breath of the wild they want to see where that stuff came from if they're young mm -hmm. uh, so they go back and check out that stuff through emulation and you know the dolphin emulator makes it really cool to emulate wii and gamecube games so there's there's options to go back without collecting um, the same way you go back and watch an older movie from like 10 or 20 years ago right mm. yeah and uh you actually just reminded me i think for the dolphin emulator for the longest time wind waker which is like a well-loved game. Yeah. People were like, oh, I can't really play this. Like there's a graphical glitch. And then someday one of the developers is just like, oh, actually this is how it uses the memory. And they were able to patch it and get a whole bunch of other games working for the Delphin emulator. Mm -hmm. And like, it's easy to say, well, that's not really retro gaming fandom. That's like programmer fandom. Yeah. But like nobody's doing that. Like I don't know anybody who's who's doing that because they they're like, oh I fixed this bug. It's like no, somebody wanted to play Wind Waker. <laughs> it's actually yeah, it's really funny the way we really have to thank a lot of these uh you know hobbyists who are really into making this stuff work. The one guy who uh I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's did a lot of the um programming for like the analog NT that just came out, the uh, super analog NT. So he made this clone system that basically plays exactly like a, a Super Nintendo. And he's done a whole bunch of these like systems that play just like the original. Wow. He's a, a brilliant guy. Like I think he was like a rocket scientist or something before he started doing this stuff. And you don't piss him off because he, he's <laughs> not really he's not really part of the gaming community. Like he's known for this stuff, but it's just kind of a hobby to him. So at one point, like the Turbo Graphics community was like, "Hey, make one for Turbo Graphics," and <laughs> they pissed him off by bugging him and just being rude about it. And so he's like, "You know what? I'm just not going to do Turbo Graphics right now." Uh, so yeah, we got to thank these programmers who just, you know, for no reason, they just go and make this stuff work, and uh, you know, bring all these games to people who who don't want to go out and collect them or really can't, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, I don't think a lot of people can just go out and shell like ten thousand dollars for one game yeah well yeah well that that gets uh, that gets to the you know crazier collector mentality that some people just need to have everything um it's a little <laughs> bit of OCD there but uh yeah i don't think everyone everyone wants stadium events who's a collector but no one wants stadium events because you can buy a uh, world-class track meet for five bucks and it's the same game right <laughs> but you can't say i own stadium events if you don't have it yeah have you seen nintendo quest yeah yeah uh, it's pretty good I'm still waiting for their game to come out. They're going to make it on NES Maker, I think. <laughs> oh, are they? Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, that was a that was a fun fun documentary they did there. Yeah, from right here in London. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about like the weird middle space that repro carts are in when you're talking mm -hmm. about that. You know, people don't want to go buy you know, so you get like ten thousand dollar cartridges or whatever, and it's halfway between, like like searching and finding the original cartridges and emulation. It's kind of neither fish nor fowl. Yeah, well, you're going to piss off a lot of people who start talking about retro cards, <laughs> retro labels. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who are okay with it. Collectors especially are, are not okay with it because 
a lot of these people do it kind of, you know, if you're going to order your, your cheap cartridges from AliExpress, that's all right. But um, mm. a lot of people are really trying to pull one over and, and make retro cartridges and sell them for the same price as the original, right? And yeah, then yeah. You know, that person then sells it to someone mm. else who then sells it to someone else. And all of a sudden, someone gets ripped off down the line who didn't know, right? Yeah. Yeah. But bigger than that is uh, now the cooler thing is the uh, flash cards, right? All of the uh, EverDrives and that kind of stuff where it's a real cartridge that has an SD card slot. Oh. And you can get them for any system. They're expensive. They're between $100 and $200. But mm. you you throw all your ROMs on an SD card and it can play in original hardware. You can basically play every game for a system on its original hardware. And most of it doesn't rely on emulation. Like if there's a specific chip or something, then it might not work. But for the most part... It plays just like it would on real hardware. Cool. I think one of my roommates in college had one of those for the DS. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those were a big deal. Nintendo kept blocking them. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Z. Yes. You had some famous last words, and they were... Oh, this actually dovetails kind of nicely. Why do people bother making their own NES or SNES cards, uh, specifically new games? Why do they go that extra mile? Why don't they just make a, a PC game or a, or a game for Mac or Linux or whatever? Yeah. Why bother making a game and putting it on a cart? Why not just make the ROM and then use an emulator? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, that's a tricky question. It's so much cheaper and easier, right? Yeah. I would guess that the reason is if you just put out another game on Steam or another ROM for people to download, the chance of getting exposure is really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. But if you were to say, you know, there are a couple of people who have done it. There's this guy who made NES Maker. He's making his game and has that for release uh, on Kickstarter. There was a great case, an early Kickstarter I backed, where a guy from Atari who worked on Yar's Revenge, uh, it was supposed to be a port of an arcade game called Star Castle, but the 2600 just, they couldn't do it. Technically, they couldn't port this game over. And now that it was like, you know, 30 years later, he's like, I, I figured it out. So I'm going to do it. So he made <laughs> the original game he was trying to port, the same developer, and threw it out on a cart um, and put up a Kickstarter. And you could pay whatever, like 50 bucks for the cart. But then if you only wanted to chip in a couple bucks, yeah, he would give you the ROM. Hmm. But I think the collector scene is what really pushes that stuff forward because there are a lot of collectors, good and bad collectors. And some of them just want everything on cart, whether it's just to put on a shelf and never open or to actually play it. <laughs> Everyone has different uh, reasons. Mm -hmm. But uh, like a good example is, uh, have you guys heard of Limited Run Games? Yeah. Yeah. They put out PS4 and Vita, and now they're doing Switch games. They they purchase limited batches. So they'll, they'll get a deal to publish, let's say, 3,000 of one game, like the remaster of Night Trap. Or uh, <laughs> more, more recently, they just did Thimble Weed Park on Switch. Oh, cool. And... They're a tiny company, and they limit their runs so that they can make sure that they sell out, so they're not stuck with thousands of games that they can't afford to sell. And there was a, I forget, I heard them do a talk on a podcast a while ago, and the reasoning behind the limited runs, because people get pissed off, because a game that gets popular sells out, and then no one can get it. Yeah. But their reasoning is they know their numbers. They know that if we make 2,000 copies of this game, there are 1,000 collectors who are just going to buy this. It doesn't matter what the game is. They're going to buy it and throw it on a shelf. They know that they have that hardcore fan base that will buy anything they put out. So, you know, that goes to show you that people will just buy anything if they can afford it and, and, and want some kind of collection. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Actually, rather nicely, the reading that I did to try to answer that question sort of comes at it from the developer's side of things rather than the collector's side. Mm. So 
feel like I still have some things to say. <laughs> well, it's super hard. Like NES is crazy hard to develop for. And that's why yeah. this NES maker tool is going to be such a big deal because it's yeah. like a drag and drop interface and all kinds of stuff is done for you. But um, there's a great documentary out there by that guy. Um, I forget what it's called. But yeah, if you look up NES maker, you'll find his documentary. And it's, oh, it's like New Age Coders or something like that, hmm. where he shows the process of him trying to make an NES game from scratch. And it's painful <laughs> to watch in places. I can only imagine because, I mean, not only is it a specific um, kind of code language, right? Yeah, it's assembly. Yeah, exactly. But you've also got to work within the constraints of what the NES is capable of reading out. Yeah. So it's not like you could make a, I don't know how you would do it in assembly. It's not like you could make a a 40 gigabyte game in assembly and then have it work on an NES. (laughs) Yes. How would that even be possible? And that's one of the funniest parts of that documentary is like, you know, he's trying to make this big game and he brings in like an accomplished fantasy writer to write the story for it. And then he has to go back to her and tell her, you know what, you might have no words, like you might have the smallest amount of words to put in this game. And then he goes to the designer and who's drawn these amazing concept art and tell them you have to draw all of these in like, you know, whatever it is, 56 by 56 pixels with three colors. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It gets a little easier as, as or, you know, you move forward. Genesis mm-hmm. and Super Nintendo a little bit easier, but they're all impossible compared to something like <laughs> Unity, Game Maker, even Unreal, yeah. any other engine that's available now. Did either of you come across the article by Yacht Club Games? No. No. Okay. No, what did they have to say? That's Shovel Knight, guys, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, Shovel Knight uh, is like arguably maybe it's a retro game no it's not a retro game (laughs) but using that definition where it looks like a retro game they tried to make shovel knight with the constraints of it being an nes game and they failed like you can't just port it and put it onto an nes cartridge there are lots of reasons why not but in an article on their website on their blog i believe it explains all the different areas that they tried to resemble the nes and where they cheated and Obviously, there's a level underneath that that's even harder about doing all the programming for the NES. There were certain things that they removed that they could have done, like uh, the whole, if there's any more than eight sprites on the screen at the same time, then that would cause flickering. Mm. And they're like, that's not enjoyable. That's not an enjoyable experience. So we're not, we're not doing that. It's like they could have used less colors, but then they wouldn't have been able to express like, different people's skin tones like they wanted the the cast the npcs to be diverse so they like well we're gonna fib we're gonna add some more colors because then we have a little bit more color to work with the only thing that could kind of been done on the nes in that case was the music and the music because it was composed with them a tracker but like yeah they, they go into some of the like higher level details of how hard it is to make something resemble an nes game and like modern tools <laughs> and it's like that's not even the low level programming parts. <laughs> well in my research on the question i came across this uh, article from Eurogamer: why people are still making nes games and it mentions these three people who are still making nes games uh, kevin hanley thomas nguinen and antoine gohin and a lot of what they have in the article is from Kevin Hanley. And he's like, it sounds like from what he had to say about it, a lot of it has to do with the challenge, which as we've all noticed is uh, <laughs> very real. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> but then also like the love of the NES, because it sounds like for these three people, and I'm guessing for more than just these three people, the NES was like a really important game system for them. And since they've been kids, you know, they've always had this dream of making an NES game. So it's like fulfilling a childhood dream. It's managing to tackle this this grand challenge and actually seeing it done. As of 2017, when this article was, was uh, written, Kevin Hanley has released nine NES homebrew games. Some of them are originals. Some of them are arcade games that he just really enjoyed and wanted to see on the NES. Well, you don't stop after one, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently not. You just keep going. Yeah. But you can't make it just one. but then uh, Thomas Guinan also mentioned that having it on the cartridge makes it truly special Mm -hmm. and uh, goes a long way to preserve the form of the game so there's like an element of I guess retro preservation in there but what I found most interesting is that like underlying all of it it just all seemed to come back to the challenge because Kevin Hanley what he was working on at least when this article was being written was a, an online RPG for the oh, NES God. called Unicorn. <laughs> the Famicom did have a modem. I didn't know you could uh, get them easily or hook them up or do anything with them. But yeah, that's uh, crazy. Yeah. Well, according to the article, when it was written sometime in 2017, I didn't write down the, the month, unfortunately, but um, the game itself was finished and he was just working with another developer to try to get the external adapter for the internet connectivity to work. Oh, so he's probably building them from scratch, or he might be yeah. building them from scratch, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I also came across the fact that there's an NES coding competition. Oh, really? What? Yeah, I think it's been going on since 2015 or 2016. The one for 2017 opened up in the middle of August, closed at the end of January 2018. And the thing that they score the highest possible points for is originality. So people are looking for like new games, new concepts. But what I found most interesting there is that along with a little bit of prize money, about 500 bucks for first place, the top five ranking people get a multi-cart with the top five games on it. Oh, cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. Dang, that's cool. That's a neat little prize to take on with you. Yeah, there's definitely a, a community of people making games for the NES. And that's a great way to sponsor, you know, whoever's sponsoring it. It's a great way to keep people interested in the NES because really, you know, as more people work on it and learn different techniques, you know, who knows what's next to be discovered that may let you get past eight sprites without the screen flickering, right? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, a great example is the uh, the original Atari 2600. It was really only designed to play Pong and Pong-like games, right? Mm -hmm. You could really only show like two paddles and a ball. And they came up with hundreds of techniques to make those games go way farther than they ever should have, right? There's no way Pitfall should have worked on that thing. <laughs> uh, but it's crazy what they can do. And so mm-hmm. to have a, a community that keeps pushing stuff forward, you know, on one hand, you know, for uh, regular people who might say, well, you can do everything on a PC, so why bother, right? But <laughs> yeah, I think the NES inspires a kind of nostalgia that I don't think anything else in, in gaming has. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking a little bit of nostalgia... And uh, as we kind of make our way away from the famous last words and into the main discussion. Mike, what is it that got you into retro gaming and retro game collecting? The fame? The fortune? 
<laughs> no, def- well, the, the funny thing is, I didn't really know anything about the fame and fortune <laughs> up front. Yeah. I grew up in a small town, and so I was segmented from the kind of retro gaming community. I really only got into it long after I had gotten a ton of stuff and uh, and then started to realize. On one hand, I was grateful because I didn't have to deal with all the drama that goes on in any community like that. <laughs> but on the other hand, it, it's kind of a shame because once you become part of a community like that, people start looking out for each other, you know, the good people. And, you know, you might get people that are like, hey, I got this thing. I don't know what to do with it. Just take it. Or, hey, I, I have that thing you're looking for. I'll give it to you for a great price, right? And stuff just kind of comes your way when people know you're looking for stuff. But yeah, to start, I, I don't know what really got me into it. I get attached to the games I love, and so I always kept the games I love. <laughs> Ever since I was little, I, I kind of still have those games that, you know, I loved from back then. And, you know, now stuff like Final Fantasy 2-3, you know, uh, a lot of those Super Nintendo RPGs are, are pretty hard to get now. So that kind of gave me a boost. And what really kicked me off as like a real hardcore collector is I started working on a website over a decade ago. And I wanted to build like the Wikipedia for video games. Oh. So I wanted to just throw all this information there. I wanted to throw screenshots, you know, guides, uh, videos of all the games. And so I started with NES and I started with that generation. So it was like NES, Master System, and then I moved on to Genesis, uh, SNES, and Turbo Graphics. And at the time, like stuff wasn't quite what it was now. Like you could still get stuff for real cheap. So I would just go and, and go on Kijiji and eBay and you'd get lots of like, here's 100 NES games for 200 bucks. Like, just take it. And Whoa. you would find crazy stuff like that. Stuff that you could not find nowadays, but stuff was really cheap. And so by the time I, I started buying these games just to play them for the website and record the footage on real hardware and that kind of stuff, you know, when you get to about halfway through a collection, you think, you know, maybe I just go for the whole thing, you know? <laughs> and uh, it was possible back then. Uh, now it's definitely not possible. I mean, now you pretty much have to come for money if you want to buy a full collection of anything. But uh, I've toned it down since then. I've, I've actually gone more into curation and kind of toning down my collection and making it a lot more personable, making it more of a reflection of the stuff I love and not just, you know, 20 copies of baseball because there were 20 copies of baseball games <laughs> released on the NES, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of people do get into it for like you said the fame and the money and the truth is the money's not really there you have to be really good you have to basically the only people i know who make money off this stuff are people who own retro shops in like towns that they're able to buy huge collections from people at you know a 40 percent of what it's worth and then they hold on to it and sell it for way more when it goes up you know you have to do a lot of bulk volume to make money in this kind of stuff and for the fame uh, after I joined that community, you learn pretty quickly. Everyone else has done it better, right? <laughs> <laughs> there are only so many copies of stadium events. There are only so many copies of a Nintendo World Championship. You know, there's only so many copies of these crazy rare games. And the people that have them probably already have two or three complete sets, you know? Wow. There are collectors out there that have... It's crazy. Like, we think of just, oh, I want to have every cart. Well, that's not enough because there is a collector who has everything you know in box and then there's a collector who has everything sealed and then there's a collector who has everything in like the original packing like for nes there's a guy who has a lot of games maybe i don't know he doesn't really come out to say but this guy has got like shipping boxes so like six sealed nes games in a box for nearly every game wow. you know the crazy stuff like little samson's and that kind of stuff that are 
you know, a grand each and uh, just for the cart. Mm-hmm. You know, so pretty quickly you come to realize my collection isn't anything special to anyone else. <laughs> so that's why I think it's better to just focus on the stuff that you love. Yeah. There's always someone with more, right? So it's... Yeah. If your collection is something that makes you happy and is important to you, that's probably ultimately the destination, right? Yeah. And anything, it doesn't matter how small it can be. Anything can be a collection, right? If you collect like Mario games, you know, yeah. <laughs> that was a bad example. No, that's a great if you collect chibi, If you collect Chibi Robo, you need like three games, right? And then you've got a Chibi Robo collection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I have a friend who isn't like a retro game collector, but you know, he really wanted to have all the Pokemon games. And so he, he bought a bunch off of eBay and he knew all the, it's like, oh, well, this is a, you can tell this is a real one because of the serial number yeah. on the inside or the, the battery or something like that. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of little details in there. Yeah. If you're buying any expensive game now, the first thing you do is open it up. If you're meeting the person on Kijiji, you bring your own screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, well. I had no idea that it had gotten that serious. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. And there's even stories that have gone the other way where people think they're selling a repro and it turns out it's a real one, right? What? So people pay like, you know, 20 bucks for a repro of a game. It turns out that person thought it was a repro, but it wasn't. It wasn't the real game. So they just got you know a $500 game for nothing. What? My best is that I found Earthbound in Valley Village and bought it for $2. Yeah. <laughs> Most people would kill for that. <laughs> it has gone up since I last looked, which was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah it, uh, but anyway <laughs> i feel like yeah, i think it's not fan gamer fan gamer used to have a different site which is earthbound based earthbound.net i think starman.net starman.net that's what it is yeah and i think they have a website that explains why earthbound is prohibitively expensive and it has nothing to do with how rare it is <laughs> interesting yeah <laughs> kind of talking about you're mentioning that you know there are people who have things in box and you have people who collect like boxes and packaging boxes and all these other (laughs) like increasingly ridiculous situations but maybe in a more relatable sense or or more common sense are there kind of terms in the retro gaming community that only retro gamers kind of know like you know if you're in the know these are these are things that are used all the time I don't think so, because even that stuff is disagreed upon, right? If you're going to say something is uh, CIB, you know, complete in box, um, or some people think that's cart instructions box. Um, Hmm. You know, some people want, like, even like the registration cards and stuff, like there are sites dedicated to what's everything that came in this box. The biggest thing is actually like the Nintendo non-licensed games, right? So NES had the non-licensed games. You've probably seen like the black cards, the Tengen games, right? Yeah, But there were probably 10 or 15 publishers putting out stuff for that. And then people consider what's part of the full set of non-licensed games, right? Like there was a um, an exercise bike that came with a game, a cartridge, oh. Racer Mate. It was called Racer Mate 2, I think. And some people don't consider that part of the collection, but other people do. And then there's these uh, games from Taiwan that you could order through the mail and they were being produced way after the system was dead. So some people don't consider that stuff there and the people that have it are you know usually talk trash to the other people thinking like oh you just don't consider that part of the collection because you don't have it and then <laughs> you know it's crazy it goes back and forth between everyone trying to consider what's a complete and what's not right yeah it's interesting too because a lot of the fandoms that we cover on the podcast it's like we talk about them being transformative it's like people will take the original works and like build on them remix them etc and like yeah that's a part of retro gaming culture that's why we have movies like ready player one coming out (laughs) yeah we also talk about fandoms being like 
participatory where like the only way to really experience things is to play it kind of like speed running mm-hmm. but like there's also the curative aspect and i mean collecting is about as curative as as it comes because you're like when did this come out what was in the box like what what games are in this yeah. collection and it's interesting because it seems like it's more skewed in that direction but it's also a collection of all those different kinds of fandoms yeah it's crazy well there, we do have kind of a transformative thing with um a lot of the rom hacks that are coming out people will make sequels to link to the past or chrono trigger or earthbound and they'll just change it up enough that it's a whole new game and then they'll throw that on a retro cart and you can get that but yeah there's just a lot going on with retro gaming right yeah well i mean like like we've kind of already covered the fact that there's no sort of hard and fast definition of what retro gaming is kind of makes it this wide amorphous thing like even at the top of the show you're saying that now it seems like the gamecube is sort of kind of maybe on the verge of becoming retro so like not only do you have people collecting and maybe that's maybe collecting is a little bit leaning more towards the 8-bit 16-bit era for now anyway oh no there are definitely we yeah. collectors we you collectors yeah, there are, there's a guy who just had a whole we you set posted yeah wow. and it's funny that's the fun part of watching the community is then you learn about games that you would never have heard mm-hmm. about um, like one of the rarest games for Wii U is some Hello Kitty Kart Racer that no one knew or cared about, but now people have realized it's one of the rarest games, so now everyone knows about it. Right? <laughs> and now its value has probably gone up, double, oh, yeah, triple, for sure. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It's super weird to see the ones that kind of rise to the top after the fact, mm-hmm. like Chrono Trigger and the Final Fantasies. That stuff was never a mystery to me because they're like I love those games, and so it makes sense that like a lot of people would. Yeah, but things like stadium events, which is just like a like a weird, <laughs> like happenstance sort of thing that suddenly made it valuable. Yeah, one of my favorites for NES is Color a Dinosaur. It's just a dinosaur coloring <laughs> book. It goes for oh, like a hundred bucks. Wow, <laughs> it wasn't one of my favorites, but I played it all the time because it was a game that we had. I think it was called Captain Comic. Yeah, yeah, that was an unlicensed game, Blue or Black Card. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was good. Yeah, I don't remember anything about it, and I was too young to know what I was supposed to do. <laughs> well, if you want to pick that up, I think it's one of the cheapest <laughs> unlicensed games, so that's still available. They made a ton of those. Okay, well, that's good to know. How much is the minutia important to retro gaming? So I, w- I was doing a little bit of research, and maybe I went in too deep, because somebody had asked on the retro gaming subreddit, it's like, oh, why does the Genesis sound so much different than the Super Nintendo? Mm-hmm. and i learned a lot about sound processors but i mean how how big is that in the retro gaming community like those little little details whether it be like the makeup of the cartridge or like how the games are made or, or any of that kind of thing oh people fight about that forever right <laughs> no one has a good answer some people think the genesis sounds better but it also can sound tinnier and then also depending on what model genesis you get will really change how it sounds some models have an improved sound chip I think the older models actually have a better sound chip and they went with a cheaper one in the newer ones. So there are people that look for very specific versions of a console. The same with the Super Nintendo for the video output. If you want to upscale, you kind of need a really specific uh, model of the Super Nintendo that's not really obvious up front. And it's just stuff like that is, you know, like I said, you could fight forever about it. It just goes right back to kind of console wars. The console wars are still alive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) PC's kind of got a a head, you know. (laughs) Given that you can emulate all the way back to the GameCube 
and the PS2 on a PC. That that kind of wait, no, I'm I've fallen into the trap. I see what I've done now. Yep, you've yep, I was just gonna say <laughs> yep, yep, you open yourself up. <laughs> Send all your hands to Nick at the next cat. <laughs> oh, and there are people who who are purists who will only play on a CRT, right? Or, yeah. or go out and find an expensive PB uh, PVM, which is a monitor that is like a CRT, but it's got better hookups, oh. so everything looks best on it. Yeah. But they're usually pretty small screens, like scan lines or not scan lines. Like there's <laughs> now that you can kind of have the choice of what your games look like. There's a whole bunch of arguments about what looks best. All right, all right. We're playing games on CRT. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. CRTs are kind of hard to come by now because people buy them for that. This is now confounding to me. <laughs> it's like because <laughs> like I could do a better version of what I was doing in my childhood, and everybody wants the worst one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I suppose like you could say like the games were made for the TVs that were at the time, and that those were the TVs of the time. But like, see, it reminds me of why people are so obsessed with cassette tapes. Oh yeah, I understand vinyl. I don't understand yep. cassette tapes. Oh, that's the exact same way. I have no idea. When we saw the first cassette tape, we were at a concert and they had a cassette tape for sale. And I have a cassette deck that I was like, I'm going to buy this just to have something to throw in the, the this thing, you know, just so I can make sure this deck even still works. But now you can get cassette tapes for tons of different bands, and it's I don't know who's buying that. Well, you know, when yeah. Columbia Columbia Record House it's- needed. You need something to do. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get 11 albums for a penny. <laughs> and then 11 albums for 50 bucks each. It's like exponential. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I guess there are legitimate reasons to play on CRTs. Like, one of the biggest reasons I've read is, is input lag. And I mean, that carries forward to like the N64 with like Smash Brothers, like where you're playing fighting games where you need to be frame perfect. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense. But yeah. like, yeah, some people get really, really anal about uh, input lag. Like, you know, you tell them someone it has like five milliseconds of input lag and they're like, no, I need to get what? it down to two. <laughs> you know? so, what? what? Yeah. Coax or RCA? Yeah. S-video if you can, right? Oh, S-video, yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. a lot of people will mod their consoles for, for RGB or, or different outputs that never really were popular over here. But if you have a, a TV or a monitor that can accept it, you know, RGB is kind of the end goal. If your console can output RGB and you have a monitor that will input RGB, that's the best looking a game will ever look. And people will spend hundreds of dollars to output stuff from their consoles, like mod their consoles to output that that format. Wow. It's crazy. Some stuff, like newer stuff, GameCube especially, is hard to get it looking really good. And because the GBA player on GameCube is the best way to play GBA games on the screen... People are really invested in getting that GameCube to look really good on TVs now. And the official component cables that Nintendo put out for the GameCube are wicked rare. You're talking like three to $500 because no one has them. So people are coming up with replacement options for that. They're coming up with HDMI options for the 64. But you're paying $100 plus to get this stuff. So it, it ain't cheap. <laughs> Holy crows. Okay, I'll just talk about components and like the best visuals and all that sort of thing and, you know, paying hundreds of dollars for extra hookups to make these old systems either work with new TVs or work better with old TVs. Gotta ask this question. In your opinion, do you think it's more people trying to recapture what they remember from their childhoods and that's sort of motivating them to like track down these different parts? Or is it more people who 
maybe didn't grow up with the Super Nintendo or the GameCube, like they were born in, in 2000 or 2001, but they've heard the myths right. of how Super Nintendo looked and everything, and they want to recreate that. Yeah. So I think it falls in kind of two categories. I think you have one set of people who really want stuff to look like it looked like when they played it, right? So that's where the yeah. CRT crowd comes in. They want that kind of blurry aspect that just makes everything look a lot smoother. But then on the other side of things, you have people who are dedicated to getting this stuff looking as good as it can on modern TVs. So they want mm. to upscale everything. They want it to be as crisp as possible. And that's a whole different set of problems, right? Because yeah. you can upscale that stuff. And now 4K is out, right? So I don't think <laughs> we have any 4K upscalers. And, you know, you can bet someone <laughs> is yes. working on that. <laughs> we literally just before this episode we recorded, it's like, what's the deal with 4K? Oh, and it's like, ah, it's coming back full circle. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to be like, hey, I beat all of the NES collection on my 4k tv and i multiplexed every game in and i played them all with one input that's where this is headed oh. can't see any of the games just yeah, yep, that's where it's time is a flat circle <laughs> no no you'll be able to see the different games you'll just have like a special pair of glasses on that like covers half of the lines on the screen in one eye and half the lines on the other eye so one eye is like seeing super mario bros 3 and the other eye is seeing zelda 2 you know it's all good People did that with split screen gameplay and and 3D televisions, and I and I kind of want to tr- try yeah. that now. But I also feel like I would it'd be afterwards I'd be going to the optometrist. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> listening to it makes me dizzy. <laughs> oh Do you have a favorite way of of playing games, especially now that you've become a more of a collector, more of a curator? Yeah, so, well, my personal favorite way, it depends on the system, right? That's the problem. Every game is, every system is so different in what it can output. But the stuff that that company I was talking about earlier, uh, Analog, is putting out, like, they just put out the Super NT. It is probably the best way to play uh, Super Nintendo games on a modern TV. They look incredible. That system itself isn't too expensive. I feel like it's about 150 bucks, uh, which is great because their previous version that played regular Nintendo games, they kind of took a Mac approach to it. Like they wanted this thing to be the Rolex of Nintendos. So it's like, it's like all um, aluminum base and it's like a solid piece. I think feels like a brick. It's got so many output options and on the insides, it's just a Nintendo. Like they literally <laughs> took, I think a Famicom and Nintendo and kind of mashed them together into this thing. And it plays games amazing, but that thing is wicked expensive, like six, $700. So Holy crow. If you can get affordable consoles like that, and I think we'll be seeing more in the future, I think that is probably the best way. Uh, that's the way I like to play games. I do like to play on original hardware. I'm not someone who really notices visual or sound differences as much as other people, but sometimes, you know, playing certain games on emulators, it's just when the sound is off compared to what you remember, that can really drive you crazy, right? Something like Castlevania, especially. It was that same Yacht Club game article, and they were like, oh, yeah, there's. The difference between the sound chips in Castlevania 3 on the Famicom and the NES. And I'm like, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I listened to the video and I'm like, nope, it's clear as day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a big deal because there was different ships in the carts, which are, you know, they they, they went overboard with Nintendo. <laughs> I feel so bad because like half of my, my experiences playing video games, I had the sound completely turned down and I was just playing music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to figure out which, which parts of uh, Dark Side of the Moon sync up to. Yeah, <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. probably go well with Majora's Mask. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that'd be a good one. Time, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
All right, this one's really specific, and um, oh, no. who knows? By the time oh, by no. the time this episode comes out, it could be completely uh, a moot point. But I'm curious as to what your thoughts are, Mike, on the whole. Like so far, the Nintendo Switch does not have a virtual console, mm-hmm. and they're sort of slowly closing down the Wii's virtual console and the Wii U's virtual console. I don't know what the deal is with the 3DS virtual console, but nonetheless, yeah. there's no virtual console on Switch. Uh, so do you see that having any kind of impact on retro gaming? Like, is it going to drive up the prices of Nintendo games that you could find on the Wii or Wii U virtual console, but not on the 3DS virtual console? Will it just be a, a whimper instead of a big bang? Or Yeah, it's hard to tell. It's funny, too, because I just did videos about this on YouTube. The Wii eShop went down like last week. Oh, wow. And we lost access to a lot of great games. Now, the virtual console stuff you can kind of write off because, you know, if you're someone who emulates, right, or you already have those games, there's other ways to get those games. Like, sure, it's not that affordable. Oh, well, it is if you're emulating. But uh, but we lost access to WiiWare, which had so many amazing, yeah. great games. We lost, like, uh, Castlevania Rebirth, Gradius Rebirth, Contra Rebirth, like three NES-style Konami games that are amazing that people can't get anymore unless now they hack their system and download something from the internet and get that on there. Yeah. I think people were really worried when Virtual Console was first coming out that it would drive down the prices of carts, and we never really saw that happen. Mm. And when I was asking community members about, like, hey, what do you think about owning digital games? Like, they are just, again, they they don't care, right? Like, it's real Mm. funny how many people have no interest in digital games that collect physical games. Like, they might grab it to play it, but they don't consider owning those games worth anything. Okay. And that's a bit of a shame because there are some great stuff there. Yeah. And I, I do think that Virtual Console was an amazing way to get new people access to those games without having to go through the problems of, you know, getting the console, blowing in the cart, right? Like getting these <laughs> things working. Mm-hmm. I think the stuff was a little overpriced, but I, I really appreciated what Nintendo tried to do when they brought out Earthbound, when they brought out Mother, they brought out yeah. a couple import games that we never had over here. And I feel like Nintendo just kind of shot themselves in the foot with the original Wii uh, Virtual Console because they made it... You, you spend all this money on games, and then they didn't put half of those games out on the Wii U. They didn't have a good upgrade plan for people to move their stuff over you know, that easily. And then now that the Switch is out, those games just kind of sit in a box, right? Like there's no way to yeah. move those over again. And so I do hope Nintendo does come back with Virtual Console really puts a full effort behind it getting a lot of those classic games at least everything that was on the wii onto the switch and give people at least you know the same thing they did with wii u where like you just pay a dollar and you get the game moved over right but who knows how their account systems are tied together if that's even possible yeah so to what extent do you see the virtual console as being important for game preservation I think it's important that companies can still make money off those games, right? I think that's a good way for gamers to show that they love something. Like yeah. sometimes companies will never listen, right? I don't know how many people <laughs> need to buy Earthbound before we get Mother Three, right? <laughs> but it's a good way yep. to get people who don't want to mod, who don't want to hack, who don't want to emulate, who just don't know how to do that stuff. It's a good way to give them an option to get these older games. So for preservation, I think it's great. Uh, I think we need something to carry things forward. I think we need that for every digital platform. I think it's a shame that you spend so much money on any DLC or anything and then the next generation comes out and it's just, it's not, like you're, sometimes wonder why did I even spend money on some of that stuff, right? Yeah. I didn't play it that much. I can't resell it. I can't do anything with it. Um, So I think it's important 
to have just for people who don't want to get into the harder aspects of collecting. Um, I do think Nintendo should put more of a focus on it. I don't think it's going to affect the prices much. If anything, it may cause the prices to go up a little bit, but I don't think that much. All right. I mean, Nintendo's going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah they've proven that. Do, do you think there would ever be an interest in, in having retro games from, for example, Nintendo as an over-the-top service a la Netflix? Well, I think they're trying it, right? I don't know how, how much they're trying it, but they said with the new launch of the Nintendo Network on Switch, they're going to give people a free game every month or something like that, right? Okay. So they have some kind of, of service planned where they're going to give you a free NES or SNES game every month that you pay the $5 a month for the service or whatever it is. Okay. I think it's a good idea. I think that, you know, PlayStation is doing it with PS Now. That's all streaming. So I don't know how that works, how well that works for some people. Um Xbox is doing it with their Game Pass, which is I, I hear really good things about, but the problem is they don't have very many um, exclusive games right now. So mm. people are trying stuff with it. I have a feeling we'll get there, but I don't know if it'll be this generation. Until then, purchase a SNES Classic. Yeah, really. <laughs> if you can find one. If you one. can get one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, for one, look forward to buying Chrono Trigger for the umpteenth time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but don't buy that PC version. <laughs> I read in the news today that... Oh boy. Square Enix is actually going to be releasing a series of patches to fix a number of problems with the PC release. Oh, good for them. It's still probably more or less the mobile port, but at least it won't yeah. be such an egregious example of a bad port. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of mobile stuff that Square's done that's really interesting that I wish they would bring out. Um, they made a full 3D remake of the sequel to Final Fantasy 2 or 4, whatever you want to call it, Final Fantasy 4, The After Years. Oh, yeah. yeah. You could get that on WiiWare, you could get that on PSP as a sprite-based game, but they made a full 3D remake that they put out only on Android and iOS, oh. and that stuff hasn't been released mm. on PC or console, so that's something I'd love to see them put out. I tend to ignore mobile games because so many of them are clickbaity stuff, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'd like to see those companies get that stuff out onto consoles people will play. Yeah. That was another thing I had, like doing doing the research in, on why people like retro games. Is there's no MMO or freemium <laughs> or DLC. It's all already there. It's just you and the screen, basically. Yeah, but if there's a bug, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah if there's a bug, you're yeah. Screwed. <laughs> oh man, unless it is exploitable. I think um, Zelda Skyward Sword had a. <laughs> You know, someone suffered from that. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I remember reading about it and I'm like, oh God, did yeah. I did I do it? Did I accidentally? Yeah. <laughs> In a different example, there's a game for the N64, um, something Silicon Valley. Okay, yeah, Space Silicon Valley, Space oh, Station, yeah. something like that. Yeah, Space yeah. Station Silicon Valley, yeah. Apparently, it's not completable because one of the pieces that you need to collect somewhere, you just like clip right through it. Oh, so you can only get like 99% or something on it? Well, yeah, or like you can't even get to the end of the game because you go to collect oh, this last brutal. piece. Yeah, I'm sure it's oh, been damn. patched in like an emulated ROM or something like that. But yeah. just like, yeah, it's like, oh man, I have this real physical copy. It's like I can't. Yeah, I can't finish the game. Can't finish it. <laughs> All right. As part of the research for this episode, and to get sort of your take on on things, Mike, I jumped over to Lost Without Translation. Yeah. And checked out the Wii U Virtual Console. Uh, retrospective video that you put up there and in that video you mentioned that a link to the past is your favorite zelda game and because that is pretty firmly a retro game i'm wondering 
what is it about a link to the past like is there some sort of memory associated with it or some sort of like warm fuzzy feeling why is it your favorite Zelda game yeah i had to think about this for a while too <laughs> when i did these things i have to defend myself a lot against different things Zelda, link to the past i don't really have to defend but sometimes you come against uh the huge mass of people that like ocarina more um yeah. i think we lost something in the translation from 2d to 3d games and what i think we lost was just like conciseness right mm -hmm. and zelda really amplifies that where you can run across hyrule in a link to the past in minutes you know you can yeah. go to every screen you can explore there's it's open there's a ton of secrets and stuff hidden in that world as soon as you move to 3d something like ocarina of time you're spending 10 minutes just running across Hyrule Field, right? <laughs> and the secrets that are there, you're, the games, they don't feel as open as they did before. And you don't have the motivation to really explore that much because it takes so long. That's my opinion anyway. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed a lot of series suffer the, from that, right? Like uh, Suikoden uh, 1 and 2 are some of my favorite RPGs. And Suikoden 3, it just feels a bit like a slog after those two, just because you can't move around that quickly in a 3D environment. So that's personally why it's my favorite all right. Well, they've definitely turned into that skid with Breath of the Wild, unfortunately for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I was a Breath of the Wild hater when it first came out. Not hater, but I was like, this does not deserve a 10, maybe an 8.5, 9, you know. But um, it, I turned around on it, but I still keep up with a lot of the games that are coming out now, right? So I've played every Far Cry, every Assassin's Creed, every game where you have to climb a tower to unlock part of the map. And as soon as I had to do that in Breath of the Wild, I was like, oh man, Nintendo just bit off Ubisoft, right? Like, I don't, I don't want Assassin's Creed in my Zelda. I want dungeons. I want like really cool items and puzzles. And I did turn around when I started to appreciate, actually, well, first of all, Breath of the Wild doesn't have any bugs in it, so that's something Ubisoft can never do. <laughs> not to say no bugs, but you're not experiencing one every five minutes like an Ubisoft game. And also, they do really cool things with the mechanics, right? Even though there are a few mechanics, you can kind of use them in any way you want. It really does feel like a real sandbox experience, right? Yeah. Uh, so I do appreciate what they did there. But yeah, sometimes you get colored by what you played before. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's like half of the trouble of me playing a game with Z or introducing G to a new game. It's like, this isn't like this other game that I played. No, that's not true. Z, Z will play pretty much anything. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though we're not very good at most of the games that we play. Yeah. Nice. Yep. I think, though, that it's getting to that point in the evening where uh, we come to the verdict, which is where we just have any closing thoughts that we have on uh, the topic, which in this case is retro gaming. So whoever would like to go first, because it's not me, because I just asked the question. <laughs> That's proven to be false in previous episodes, I'm sure, yeah. but I will go first. Go for it. I don't know how far removed I can get from being into retro gaming, or as I knew it back then, gaming. <laughs> <laughs> like the SNES crew of games are still my favorite games that I've ever played. And it's probably pretty much because that's what I played when I was a kid. I mean, I've, I've played lots of, lots of cool stuff since. I'm anxious to check out, you know, the more recent Final Fantasies and things to see where it's gone. But, like, my favorite recent game that's come out that I've played is Hyper Light Drifter, which kind of tells you where my head's at. With that. <laughs> I don't think it's for any objective reason. It's just, like, that's those are the games I'm familiar with. Those are the games I continue to play when I do play games, with the exception of the new Pokemon games. <laughs> well. So yeah, I got I got to say that I'm in. I can't get any of this information out of my brain, so I may as well call myself a retro gamer. <laughs> nice. 
in a story not dissimilar to G's, uh, I'm also in. <laughs> I do play a lot of like modern games, but when I look at the games that are on my list, they're indie games, they're retro style games. I've been playing Celeste lately, and it's like, man, this obviously isn't an old game, but it, it kind of looks like maybe some fancier stuff. I went to the effort of getting an emulator to run on my pocket chip uh. so that I could play Chrono Trigger on a pocket chip. I have a Retron 5. Nice. So I feel like I'm more in than some of the other things that I said that I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that you mentioned, Mike, the conciseness of some of the, the retro games is what I really enjoy. There's lots of really garbage retro games, but like there's oh yeah, for there's sure. just lots of garbage games in general. And, you know, I really appreciate the non-garbage games, the ones that were concise, the ones that are still fun to play, or the ones that are quick to play. I like playing mm-hmm. Chrono Trigger and not having to play the game for 40 hours to finish <laughs> or blades of steel oh yeah it was different back then when a game came out every week you know one game if you're lucky <laughs> oh yeah and now yeah. you're looking at tens of releases every week it's impossible to keep up with anything there's no time to spend 40 hours on a single game that you don't like <laughs> yeah so i'm definitely a... all right i'm gonna jump in here and very quickly say i am super in <laughs> <laughs> Aside from like Twin Peaks and Zelda, I don't think there's another fandom that we've covered so far that I am more into. Got a CRT up in here with me. Got my GameCube <laughs> with the original chords. That's right, everybody. <laughs> so I'm in. Yeah, and I, I'm obviously in. I have a huge retro collection. Like I said, I've been paring it down, so I'm not quite as crazy as a lot of those collectors out there, but I have a lot of fond memories, and I love even going back and discovering new games on those machines I had never heard about and they are still just as fun right yeah yeah that like particular specific like really exciting joy that i didn't think that i would have i thought i'd pretty much you know i know i know the snes i know what what all is on it and then t showed me that what's the game called evo evo yeah that's a great game (laughs) that i never heard of yeah but also that's a very expensive game (laughs) well i didn't know that at the time yeah we were playing on the the retron emulator yeah of course yeah no however you can play it like you said if enix isn't going to put that out any other way then that's your right (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, for me it was guardian legend for the nes i don't know if any of you have played that I never heard of it before I was collecting NES, and then it's amazing. It is this top-down Zelda-like game, okay. but when you go into a dungeon, it becomes a uh, vertical shoot-em-up. Ooh. Oh, cool. It is wicked cool. But yeah, there's tons of stuff like that. When you come across something great like that, it just makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. It's my life. All right, that brings us to the spotlight where we try to shine a light on an interesting cause or neat fanish thing. I have not one but two spotlights, one because I thought of one at the last second, and the other one because it was inevitable that it would come to this. (laughs) (laughs) Since I play a bunch of retro games, there are a couple of different things I could have picked. The first spotlight is actually a throwback to a previous episode on speedrunning, I believe. Games Done Quick. So if you go to games.quick.com, you can check them out. They are a series of charity video game marathons that feature high-level gameplay by speedrunners raising money for charity. They have raised over $14 million for charity. And they have like a ton of people in attendance. If you want to check out their events, go to gamesdonequick.com. I think they have a winter games and a summer games. We are in between both of those. So so that's not happening right now. Gives you time to get ready for the summer. Yeah, perfect. Get that summer summer bud. (laughs) 
for all the indoor <laughs> gaming. Yeah. Um, the other one that I'm going to mention, because collecting came up a lot in this episode, and I just barely remembered about this thing, is an online store called Rose Colored Gaming. Mm-hmm. Rose Colored Gaming is a site where they sell a lot of like stands for video games or controllers or things like that, uh-huh. and they're customized. So like there will be a Mario one that will look like different Mario elements depending on which game you get. And you just kind of like plug the game into the stand. Or there'll be like if there's a set of games like say Pokemon, there might be a stand that has a spot for all of the Pokemon games and, and different things like that. Um, so it's, it's pretty neat if you are collecting or if you're like Mike and you're curating a collection, you just want to show off your really cool stuff. You can buy stuff there at uh, rosecoloredgaming.com, spelled the American way, not the Canadian way. (laughs) Yeah, they have neat stuff there. I've bought in some of their stands. They do like logo signs. So if you have like a bookcase and you want to put a Nintendo logo over it, you can get a cheap one there or a Sega logo or a PlayStation. Yeah, they do some neat stuff. Yeah, they have other things. Just check it out. It's all like retro gaming style stuff. They also have, I went to the website. (laughs) They have like cases that you can get for your N64 games. So it looks like, you know, DVD style cases. Ah. cool yeah and that's it for this week's spotlights mike would you be able to tell us a little bit about lost without translation uh yeah sure so lost without translation is a youtube channel i started with uh, three friends of mine uh, a couple years ago originally the idea was to play through japanese games to play through import games that people don't really know about and our kind of take on it was let's play through these games even if there's an english patch which most of the time there isn't We'll play through them in the Japanese and just try and figure out how they go. Um, and that's always more painful than uh, fun, but it, I think it's fun to watch. <laughs> and it, it actually came about pretty funny. I was looking at getting better equipment, as you do when you do YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And I was trying out the new microphone I got. And I recorded a Wii U retrospective where I just walked through my Wii U collection. And that really, really blew up more than any of my other videos. So now we do a balance of me talking about import games and also these retrospectives where I walk through a console's entire library. So I I showcase the games I have, which I do not have any full collections anymore at this point, (laughs) but I'll like arrange them by when they came out. Like for Wii, I think it was about three videos of just every Wii game that I think is worth checking out. Right. So it's, it's a great way for, if you're looking at getting into collecting or if you just want to know what games to play on an emulator, it's a great resource to see what games are worth checking out. Cool. And you can find that at youtube.com slash lost without translation. Yep. Spelled the the regular way. <laughs> yeah, spelled, spelled the regular way. way. <laughs> Correctly. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Language is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you haven't tired of hearing three people with the same name talk at each other, you can find all our episodes up at fantapological.com as well as on iTunes and wherever good podcasts are heard, please do leave a uh, rating and review for us so uh, we get more people to hear us. And uh, hit the subscribe button so you'll get our new episode every Friday and uh, coming soon, minisodes. Most places people typically are on the internet, we are there at the Nixcast. That is the three of us. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Vero at the Nixcast. And if you have any suggestions for fandoms that you'd like to see us cover on the show, email us, nick at the Nixcast. Yes, and if you are currently listening to this podcast, thank you very much for downloading. Thank you very much for subscribing, perhaps. And thank you very much also for listening. But you might also be interested in watching us record this podcast that you're currently listening to live before your very eyes over on twitch.tv 
slash the next cast. Usually, this recording happens sometime early in the week, Monday, Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, according to the law of averages, Monday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern. But, you know, it bounces around a little bit. You can follow us on Twitter, as G pointed out, to find out the exact times every week. But one thing that never changes, a few things that never change, we're always engaging. We're always hilarious. And we're always at twitch.tv slash the next cast. But you might be wondering to yourself, why bother just watching a podcast? Because I can just listen to a podcast and do other stuff. Well, friend, listener, dear person in the ether, you would want to watch us record this podcast because then you can participate in the podcast. You can jump into the chat, give us your thoughts as we're discussing the why of a certain fandom, maybe even ask your own questions of us, of our guests, or you could even participate in the uh, host favorite section of the podcast, the famous last words. Z, I think you need to take a little nod from those retro games and learn a thing about conciseness. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, no. You, I, Dragon Quest is a retro game. It's not very concise. <laughs> uh, yeah, but if you were playing Dragon Quest, we'd probably already be dead. <laughs> uh, but Z is right. We are doing the segment that is famous last words. Next week, we are talking about a different fandom, which happens to be tangential to this week's fandom. Next week, we're going to be talking about chiptunes. And so... What are your famous last words to find out about chiptunes fans or people who make chiptunes? Anything in that area, really. All right, I'm going to jump in here. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. The only thing I know about chiptunes is that they are made with the chips from video game consoles. So I know next to nothing about chiptunes. I know next to nothing about how artists put their stuff together, bands put their stuff together. My question is... With chiptunes, is there an artist, or in general, do artists treat the different chips like different instruments? Like, is there a chiptunes band where somebody's playing the NES music chip, somebody's playing the SNES music chip, and somebody's playing, like, the Genesis music chip? Or with chiptunes, is it just like, it's just this one chip, and that's it? All right. In Z's question, I had an opportunity to think of one of my own. Mm -hmm. What, if any, is the difference between fans of chiptunes and, say, EDM fans? Mm -hmm. Is there overlap? Are they distinct? Where does Otaku Core or whatever, <laughs> whatever Spotify playlists fall into all that? <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to have some words next week. I'm looking forward <laughs> to this. We don't cover music that much. <laughs> <sighs> Mike, you're also welcome to have some famous last words. Yeah, I'll throw one in for you. Since we talked about it earlier in this episode, these people that make chiptune music, do they care which version of the sound chip they are using for Super Nintendo Genesis, right? That is something I want to dig into next episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to make a statement. Oh, boy. These are the fun ones. Okay, yeah. what do you got? A majority of chiptune does not use chips. I feel like you're going to win that bet. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Now is not the time to figure that out. No. Nope. That is next week's job. That's right. Mm -hmm.
Mike, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on this episode. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know it gets kind of late in the, the evening. That's all right. We really appreciate having you as a guest. Cool, thanks. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I thought I thought I knew about this thing I loved, but it turns out I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's always more. Man, yes. That's it, everybody. Thanks for watching, and uh, see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. Bye. find that at youtube.com slash lost without translation yep spelled the the regular way <laughs> yes spelled <laughs> the regular way <laughs> correctly <laughs> i don't know man <laughs> language is weird yeah yeah okay um let me get my bearings just a second here where are we <laughs> okay <laughs> All right, all right, all right. Zia, you done? <laughs> yeah, I'm done. Okay, good. Thank Go you. ahead. <laughs> um, if you haven't tired of hearing three people with the same name talk at each other, you can find all of our episodes up at phantopological.com.